The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another installment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is one that should provoke a certain amount of interest, especially among the general public, and we have been over the course of time trying to extend our reach into a more general public and to look at broader applications of archaeology and more thematic issues that are of greater appeal to a wider audience. And today's topic is sex, and there's nothing else I can say about it other than I'm sure that this is going to elicit a very strong interest uh, amongst people in a variety of walks of life, and certainly looking at the connections between sex and archaeology. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Peter Sinelli, who is an instructor of anthropology at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Sinelli's work has been very extensive and covers a very broad range of interests. He teaches the human species, general anthropology, sex, gender, and culture, which is obviously a topic that we're going to talk about today. Uh, the archaeology of Caribbean piracy the, and uh, Caribbean archaeology and its uh, study abroad program at the University of Central Florida. And it is my uh, pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Peter Sinelli to the program. Peter, welcome, for, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, Peter, we talked about this prior to the show, and I think it really is a very excellent intro into this theme. Why does archaeology study sex, and how does that connection get established? Well, archaeology is defined as, and your, and your longtime listeners, of course, know this, but archaeology is defined as the, the study of past human cultures. And anthropology in general is interested in human culture. Archaeology is interested in past human cultures. And because we deal with people who are long gone, who we can't observe, who we can't ask questions to, um, who we can't live with and interact with, uh, we need to use a different set of database. We need to look at the materials that they left behind. 
but the overarching goal of the practicing anthropologist is to study something about human culture. Now, human culture is you know pretty pretty broad tent, pretty broad topic. Um, culture is broadly defined as a set of learned behavior ideas that human beings acquire uh, over the course of their lives as members of society. Uh, culture is learned. Culture is uh, uh, very particular in a lot of cases. What one culture does, it does for reasons that make sense to that culture. And other cultures may do things that are different, in some cases very, very different. But it is uh, an all-encompassing human behavior. Culture is unique to people. Uh, and it includes everything from Internet radio as a technology, that's part of culture, uh, to my set of car keys. And, and also includes things about behaviors that are regulated by you know, or parts of our biology, things that we have to do in order to live as animals. And that's kind of where sex comes in. Sex has a material culture or can have a material culture, but sex is a biological function that is part of our mammalian biology. It's part of our anatomical reality. And if we are to continue the species, then we have to have sex. But sex as a biological function falls under the realm of culture. Because if we look at culture, yeah, culture is technology, culture is tools, stuff that we make, things that we do, behaviors, religion, all that wonderful stuff. But culture, and every human culture, has some sort of expression of this, is used by people to regulate aspects of our simple biology. Things that we do as animals in order to live are regulated by culture. What we eat, what we don't eat, how we prepare our food, uh, how food is used in ritual. These are all governed by cultural things. And what Australian, indigenous Australians eat for breakfast, which could consist of insects, is not what people in New York City have for breakfast. Governed by culture. Um, other things that we need as animals. We need shelter. Uh, we need to groom ourselves. We need to wear clothing in many climates where it gets cold. Uh, in climates where it gets hot, we don't need to wear clothing. All related to our biology. How we go to the bathroom all biological, all governed by culture. And finally, how we have sex. Sex is a biological function, as I've said, but it's governed by cultural rules. And you're hard-pressed to find anything that is a simple function of basic mammalian biology in humans that people come up with more rules about than sex. That's an interesting concept here. I, I think you're right. And, and I would just go back, and we had talked about this, but uh, when I studied archaeology, which was way back in the Pleistocene, the discussions on sex and archaeology really went back to the earliest artistic depictions of uh, the, the definitions of basically the separation, rather, between the sexes, which uh, focused on the organs, the very famous Venus figurines that were discovered in the Paleolithic. Those were the touchstones, really, for getting into discussions on human sexuality and what it was, how it was re represented. Of course, there was a semiotic component to it, how to break it down in terms of the earliest symbolism, and, of course, the exaggerated organs were clear 
clearly issues and topics that were of concern and interest, especially when you go back into the Paleolithic or the Old Stone Age. But I gather that with your expertise and the type of work that people along the lines of what you're studying are, are promoting and, and, and discussing, uh, it has evolved into a much more significant uh, issue and why don't you give us a little bit of that kind of background so that we know where things are at this point? Sure, uh, and and that's a great point because for the longest time, um, archaeologists and really the field of American archaeology didn't think that sex was something that we could really study. They they didn't think that answers we we could we could find answers in the archaeological record to what people thought about sex, how they were having sex, the role of sex, and the customs associated with sex in past society. It was thought to be unknowable because, you know, sex is an act, it's a behavior, and if they didn't draw pictures about it and they didn't make art about it or figurines or what have you, um, or they didn't have any sort of material culture that, went, that, that was associated with it, and, you know, we, we now know that, you know, we see expressions of exaggerated sex organs and all kinds of art, but, uh, you know, we find ancient sex toys as well now. And it was thought that these things were just kind of curios, and there wasn't beyond that any sort of synthesis that we could use to incorporate it into a larger explanation of cultural behavior. And fortunately, over the last 30 or 40 years or so, that's, that's begun to change. Um, archaeologists now... Have well, we've taken a page from our, our friends in cultural anthropology who studied sex and gender and gender roles far longer than we have for you know nearly a hundred years, and we've taken a page from them and said, well, we, we just need to look at it from a different concept, you know, from a different context. We we need to try to understand how people were doing things and what this meant to them um, using theoretical constructs that we use to understand other things. One of the theoretical constructs I like to enjoy and or I like to employ uh, to to try to tease out these sorts of ideas um, is, is looking at uh, the underlying economics of it because although sex is a biological thing, sex also is how we reproduce the the species, and reproducing the species has consequences it 's something that we have to do in order to keep going it 's something that many of us want to do but unchecked fertility, particularly in the ancient world, when there wasn't a grocery store that you could go down to, when there weren't public assistance programs to help you f- help you know, uh, provide for your family when uh, you weren't able to, um, ha- having additional mouths to feed in the litter was, what was, was risky, was absolutely risky. And so I try to employ an economic approach to help inform or at least guide inquiries into these sorts of questions from the past. And so when you look at that, you look at the economic basis for sex as, as basically being one of the more critical issues that allows us to look at sex in the archaeological record. How do you make that connection? Well, you know, I, I, I will admit that I am an unabashed, unapologetic materialist. That's my, my theoretical bent as an anthropologist. Uh, and I think that economics really underpins a lot of what we see in human behavior. Now, that isn't to say that, that people don't do things that, that cost them or they always make the most perfect economic decisions. But these kinds of considerations do underpin human behavior. Um, I think it's important to look at the economic model 
or the economic adaptive strategy that is being employed by a particular group of people. And this group of people has a way of making a living, and that way of making a living is going to be directly related to the environment that they live in. Uh, For example, people in maritime situations, I work in the Caribbean, I study island people, the sea is very important to them. The sea is where they acquire most of uh, the, the overwhelming majority of their animal protein. And so people that usually see live in island environments are going to fish. That's something that we see around the world. People who are very uh, employ very intensive agriculture, they have a certain set of guidelines and rules that they need. Agriculture can be very, very labor-intensive. Labor-intensive requires more labor. More labor, more children. So your economic model is going to, in this case, relate to how many children you have and also rules and attitudes about sex. Rules about sex can be more casual, uh, and, and we see are more casual in environments where there is plenty, when you don't worry so much about where your next meal is coming from. Uh, attitudes about children and attitudes about sex are more conservative, more restrictive in environments where people are more on the margins, when they are not entirely sure where the next meal is coming from, or maybe they had a good year this year, maybe the rains came and watered the valley so the grass grew and my goats had something to eat, but I've lived long enough to know that it doesn't always rain just when you want it to, and I've been through lean years, and I have no assurance that next year is going to be as good as this year, so maybe having more mouths in the family is not something that I want to do every year. But but let's get back to the material cultural record, which you obviously indicated is something that's important to you, and certainly as archaeologists, that is more our sort of purview than it would be, say, in other branches of archaeology. So in the material cultural record, what are some of our earliest indications of sexuality, and how is it expressed, and what part of the world are we finding it? Some of the some of the earliest the Venus figurines I think are are that you mentioned earlier are um, probably the earliest expression that we see uh, of what is clearly a gendered individual uh, someone that clearly their their sex is expressed the Venus figurines of course have the engorged breasts and the the, uh, the distended stomach, it looks like a woman who just gave birth or uh, the torso looks like female just gave birth or is about to give birth. Um, and, and these are, you know, 20, 17, 18, 25,000 years old. Um, that's some of the earliest kind of expression that we see. Uh, we also see later on in Africa, we see uh, cave painting where you have clearly gendered people. Um, you can tell because they paint the males a certain way, they paint the females a certain way, and you can see different kinds of sex organs. What are they trying to express with that? Are these sexual pictures, or are they just depicting sex? Is this, uh, is this a landscape? I mean, you can look at Renaissance art, and you see men and women in, in the picture. Right, right, But that right. doesn't mean that they're writing about sex. And so it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to see those kinds of... Those kinds of it's difficult to really draw solid conclusions about how they viewed sex uh, with that kind of material culture in antiquity. 
It's a little easier as we move into the classic period because the Greeks and Romans had all kinds of stuff that they wrote, you know, all kinds of artwork about sex. And, you know, we also can, they were literate, and we can also read what they wrote about it. And so we have a pretty good conceptualization about it. But seeing individual items in and of themselves, things like the Venus figurines don't give us a whole picture as to what people were thinking. Now, that doesn't say that doesn't mean that ancient material culture is completely inscrutable. That's not true at all. We right. as archaeologists, we always reason through analogy, right? And so we think, okay, well, what would people use something like this for? What were their concerns? Uh, maybe these are fertility uh, items. Maybe you use them to get pregnant. Maybe you use them to stay pregnant. Maybe they protect you during childbirth, which, of course, you know, in the prior to the advent of modern medicine, was a, a dangerous proposition for women. Many women died in childbirth. Maybe this protects you through that. Maybe this is a blessing that uh, is bestowed upon your child for a long, happy life. You know, there are a lot of different hypotheses that we can come up with. Maybe it's a goddess cult. Maybe, maybe this is the earth goddess. Uh, these are the earliest fired clay artifacts known to archaeology. Maybe they're taking the earth and they're processing the earth into this mother goddess because the earth gives life. And maybe you take these and you bury them at your hunting grounds or you bury them near the water hole so the animals come. Um, you know, there are all kinds of different hypotheses we can throw out. And then you work to try to test those one at a time. I would think, though, that the very earliest sexuality um, depictions are the ones that sort of start to express themselves in a relatively developed uh, morphology of artistic bent, shall we say. Let's talk about uh, sexual sexuality being depicted, certainly to some degree in the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, and probably much more prominently uh, during the time of the Greeks and the Romans. And I want to get back to that particular topic with you after this break. We will be back with our guest, Dr. Peter Sinelli, in just a few. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you experiencing a relationship or a relation slip? Without the carefully measured balance of spirit and ego, it might not be what you want it to be. On Relation Slips with Dr. Bobby Summer and Lori Lynn Mann, we'll explore relationships from two unique ends of the spectrum. In addition, we'll have amazing guests, both experts and celebrities, and we'll hear from you, too. Relation Slips can be heard live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Dance Talk Radio has come to Voice America. Join host Tracy Marciniak and her celebrity guests every week for a show that takes you inside the world of dance. What's it like working with stars like Katy Perry and Taylor Swift? 
The experts share their stories and the behind-the-scenes secrets. Plus, inside tips to become a better dancer, instructor, or studio owner. Dance on over to the Voice America Variety Channel every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific for Dance Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schulten and I, and we're having a very special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. The topic, which is clearly one of widespread concern and interest, is is sex and sexuality. And uh, we have discussed the depictions of predominantly the female form with respect to uh, its its earliest depictions in antiquity, the Venus goddesses with the distended stomachs and the uh, the in, the depictions of the sexual female organs in exaggerated forms with the Venus figurines. We have also discussed the uh, deification element of this, certainly with respect to the goddess symbolism in in the earliest cultures. And, and I guess, uh, Peter, I, what I'd like to get into is the entire question of sexuality during the Greek and Roman period, for which, as you had indicated, there is sort of an explosion in interest in sexuality that is clearly linked to the fluorescence of art and the various depictions of murals and artistic representations in the greater world of, of, of Greece and, and Rome. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about how concepts of sexuality are depicted in the artistic forms of Greek, Greek and Roman um, civilization? Certainly. Um, it, it, well, let's begin with the Greeks, because they, they came first, and the Romans kind of copied a lot of the stuff that they did. They um, did. The, the Greeks had uh, much more open uh, views of sexuality, just in general, uh, than we see today. This is um, uh, obviously in a time before... Uh, Christianity and the and the and the time before Islam and the big major religions that prohibit this sort of stuff, and the Greeks were very very open about their sexuality, um, and sexuality was very very fluid, and this is reflected not only in their um, art and literature but also in the material culture of uh, wealthy Greek citizens. Greek was a, a male dominated society. Um, Adult male citizens uh, were the ones that voted. They were the ones that were in charge of things. Uh, and we think of this, you know, adult male citizen in this high re- highly patriarchal society as being this, uh, you know, very masculine, manly man's, uh, man's man sort of guy. Uh, but the truth is that uh, all Greek men were very fluid with their sexuality. And your sex and the role that you played during sex 
varied depending on your particular uh, uh, job during the sexual act. And the penetrator was the active partner, was the man. And the penetratee was the more passive role and was either a woman or another man who was being penetrated. And Greek men, I mean, Greek society had a, a rigid structure as to how your son would grow up. And this involved a mentorship relationship between um, an adult man, a, a citizen, and uh, adolescent boys. And it also included sex. It was not purely sexual. Male youths were instructed by their mentor, uh, their Erastes, as they called it, um, uh-huh. in, in the ways of proper society. This is, how, this is how you act. This is how you treat each other. This is manners. This is what we do in certain social situations. And part of this relationship um, was to have sex with the young boy. This was not considered uh, in any way uh, the same way that we consider it today. Um, Back then, it was considered commendable. It was considered part of maintaining Greek culture the way it is. It was necessary to the reproduction and replication of society because you were training these young men how to be adult citizens with the expectation that they would grow up and they would engage in the same sort of mentor-mentee relationship with boys in the next generation. That brings you was, bring us to a very interesting point, which, which I think a lot of people be interested in. Um, what then is the balance in the relationship, say, uh, both from the archaeological record and from the historicity of it all, between hem- homosexuality and heterosexuality as depicted in the archaeology and art per se, and as we know of it in the historic record? You're, you're obviously indicating that it was never considered a deviant type of behavior and clearly a much more progressive perspective on sexuality than we even have have today. Um, what do we know about that, and, 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 and how do we uh, infer these conclusions from archaeology and the uh, historical traditions? Well, there is a wealth, an absolute bounty of material culture that demonstrates exactly what they thought about sex, homosexuality, and these relationships, these different relationships. Um, on their finest, absolute finest uh, ceramics, the china that you bring out uh, to serve to uh, the most important guests that ever come to your home are all kinds of depictions of men and boys having sex, men and women having sex, men, several men having sex with one woman. Uh, there are pictures of men uh, uh, with dogs uh, licking their genitalia. All of this is on the fine china that you serve to your in-laws when you're trying to impress them, the fine china that you serve when your boss comes over. So this clearly indicates that the Greeks were not, they, they had this concept in which these kinds of ideas were not deviant, like you said. These kinds of behaviors were considered a, an integral part of society. Uh, and, and indeed necessary to maintaining and reproducing what they had. Uh, it, it is, in terms of homosexuality, like I said, the, the attitudes were very, very fluid. And you may take on a more feminine role as a man when you are the 
mentee in the mentorship relationship. Then when you grow up, you take on the more masculine role. Um, There are pictures of men and boys having sex on the material culture, again, and it was not viewed as anything sort of deviant. Uh, Adult male citizens had their choice of sex partners. They had wives because they had to have wives in order to have sons that were of, 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 you know, uh, social status, of of noble birth or of, of status, if you will. So they would have a lineage, and they would have wives. They would have mm-hmm. mistresses. They would have girlfriends. They would have sex with the young maid girl. They would have sex with the young stable boy. They would have a relationship with the son of a social peer, a social equal, in that mentor-mentee uh, relationship. And all of this is expressed on their art. Uh, you know, your sexuality was not ever set in stone. Very fluid. It, it, it changed uh, based on your station, uh, your age and, and the, your stage of life. Um, it, it was related to, it was fluid depending on what your social status was. The higher the status, the more partners of every description you could have. Um, and finally, there weren't really any fast, hard and fast rules about it. Uh, 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 an individual male citizen's desires whether he liked boys, whether he liked girls, men, women, was was not any more uh, a source of controversy or a source of discomfort for anyone than you like vanilla ice cream and I like chocolate. But, but Peter, there is a very interesting point that you raise here, uh, and one that's very provocative. Uh, we all know, or at least many of us know, that just to acquire citizenship in ancient Greece represented a major status, and and, and presumably Indeed. the uh, depictions on the vases, the depictions on the sculptures, represent sort of the highest strata in Greek society. The question I have was, do these sexual mores work their way down the, the social ladder as well, so that non citizens who clearly comprised the uh, greater population in ancient Greece also interacted sexually in the same way such that, for example, the bisexuality that you talk about uh, certainly seems to be a very uh, fluid, as you would put it, uh, operation. Uh, Yes. Uh, Indeed, we do see that. Um, it, It is not as formalized it's not as ritualized as it is in the upper classes who take on these young boys uh, and teach them the way of the world, including how to have sex. Uh, that that is a, a, a rather rigorously prescribed uh, rite of passage, if you will, for the upper classes. Mm-hmm. But the attitudes and the fluidity and the um, uh, I, I suppose openness, like you said uh, earlier, progressiveness that re- relates to individual sexual behavior, uh, was something that transcended Greek society. Now, who, you know, your ability to do what you wanted was impacted by your social status. And people of very low status, slaves and so forth, they didn't really have all the options. They were really more targeted, if you will. But, right. but you know, there there wasn't any question that a slave who was who caught the eye of a citizen um, and became his lover, there wasn't any sort of negative view towards that from anyone's perspective. Right. So, uh, so, so that certainly had its repercussions and had its echoes in the greater society. Uh, was there a major transition between the Rome, Greek, and the Roman period vis-a-vis sexuality? Are we seeing any different depictions? Uh, 
we see a lot of the same a lot of the same thing um, openness uh, freedom to explore your sexuality uh, but the relationship, the specific relationship that adult male citizens had with their protégés was not as formalized. Now, upper-class Romans of status and power, of course, had the freedom to have sex with whomever they choose. But the way that the hierarchy was balanced and this relationship and expectation that you would take on a protege and mentor them and have sex with them, and this was, um, uh, you know, what you did and what everybody of your status did was was not nearly as rigid. Those expectations were not as, as much a part of Roman culture as they were in Greek culture. Was there a casualness to, to sex? It seems like there would have been. There, um, there there certainly was, you know, it, it, we have good evidence for the degree of which casual sex was a part of the Roman worldview anyway, um, in the form of a lot of the frescoes that have been recovered from places like Pompeii. Uh, one of the uh, uh, most famous examples of this is uh, what archaeologists believe is um, um, uh, it's a bathhouse and perhaps a bordello. Um, that was recovered, or that was excavated in uh, in Pompeii, and it shows all kinds of ribald scenes of different kinds of sexual acts. Uh, there are people who are uh, having sex with, you know, several partners all having sex at once. There are expressions of male male to male homosexual sex, female to female homosexual sex. Um, there are depictions of group sex, and. And also um, depictions of of pictures of people having sex in ways that was kind of forbidden by proper Roman society. The Romans, for all of their uh, all of their eccentricities, I suppose, as it relates to uh, the different kinds of orgies and things that they had, uh, did have prohibitions on some kinds of sex. And uh, uh, oral sex was was forbidden. You didn't do that sort of thing. And so it's interesting that on the walls of this bordello in Pompeii, uh, there are several incidences of oral sex, um, both fellatio and cunnilingus. And it was thought that that was absolute verboten. You know, this was not something that proper Roman society did, which caused the archaeologists to have you know, if art imitates life and this isn't what life is supposed to be, well, how do you interpret that? Well, first of all, right. every society has rules about sex, but every society has rules that are about breaking the rules for sex, right? Every society has rules for everything, and we have rules to break the rules. And there are vast segments of society who say, well, I really don't care what society thinks about my sex life. I'm going to do what makes me happy. So exactly. it could be something like that. Uh, also, this is kind of a more of a working class sort of place. This isn't a, a high-end sort of boutique sort of place, and it's not a palace or anything. So the people who have been coming and going through, these, uh, uh, through this uh, institution would have looked at these pictures uh, and, you know, had more of a, a ribald sort of attitude towards these sorts of things. Uh, but I, I guess the question I would also have here in this connection is how much that we're how much of what we're seeing in the depicted art, how much of those depictions actually filter down because uh, you know in very many cases the records sort of glorify a certain type of behavior or a certain type of achievement, and when you look at how this filters its way down into the populace, 
it's really not not quite as prolific as it is depicted in the various scenarios uh, in the artistic world, which clearly depict a more elevated stratum of society. Yeah, absolutely, and and it does and it does filter down, and that leads to another possible interpretation of what these pictures in the working class bordello were. Because, yes, the Romans have this stylized idea and, uh, of what sex is and what sexual relationships are. And there is, for example, a, an artifact called the Warren Cup, which was made out of pure silver, uh, that shows depictions of upper-class Romans having sex with uh, several different people, uh, including a young boy. Saved. And and this is uh, obviously was uh, made out of solid silver, and obviously was owned by someone of uh, enormous wealth and influence. But their ceramics uh, that were meant for the working class and the lower classes also depict exactly the same thing. They're just made out of clay, so it does filter down. And the ones that are made out of clay show a broader depiction of things uh, because they're mass produced and they're selling more of these. They actually made them in molds. And they're selling all of these different things to much greater, wider audiences. So you you do see more variation, and you do see more um, you do see more uh, uh, options uh, in in the in the lower classes besides just the stylized whatever ideal Roman image of sex, if you will. So back to the paintings in in uh, in the bordello. It's been thought that because some of these things are so ribald that perhaps this is as much satire as anything else. Right. Because to the Romans, you know, you put wealthy Romans, put all these beautiful frescoes, all these beautiful murals all over their, all over their houses wherever they possibly could. And places where they hung out, you know, each other's houses and public places where they hung out were always richly decorated with artwork, a lot of which was sexual. Well, the lower classes tried to imitate that sort of thing. And whoever right. owned the bordello wants to make it look like a high-class place. So he has pictures drawn on the wall. And the pictures that are drawn on the wall are things that the common people can relate to, which are sex acts that are kind of forbidden by proper Roman society, but nonetheless embraced by the common man. Sort of like the velvet drawings that you see, or the velvet depictions you see in many bars, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot like the, the yeah, these frescoes uh, in the bordel are a lot like the Velvet Elvis. Okay, thank you very much, Peter. We'll be back with our very fascinating discussion with Dr. Peter Sinelli after this break. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? 
Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein, back with you on a discussion of archaeology and sex with Dr. Peter Sinelli of the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And we have been exploring the ways in which sex and sexuality are depicted in the archaeological record and chiefly at this point we've been discussing how it is depicted in the grandiose art of the Greeks and the Romans, and obviously they spared nothing in depicting their mores and their values and uh, reconstruction, in a way, of lifeways. And it's been a very fascinating discussion, and one that I think should provoke a lot of interest because of the very progressive ways in which human sexuality was not only depicted, but apparently acted out in ancient Greece and Rome. I want to leap a little bit ahead into one of the topics that... uh, Dr. Sinelli is uh, known for having a certain amount of expertise, and that is uh, prostitution in 19th century America. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how we link up the archaeology to a reconstruction of prostitution and, in fact, uh, 19th century America? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the prostitution is, of course, called the world's oldest profession, and the reason is that it's something that is almost ubiquitous in the in the history of past cultures. Uh, very common human institution, and so as it's part of past human cultures, it's something that archaeologists ought to look at. Um, th- there is an abundant material culture that is associated with this uh, in the United States, uh, not only in the big uh, some big cities in the East Coast, but also in frontier towns and in uh, some of the growing cities, at least in the 19th century, um, out west as as America was was moving west. Uh, it's relevant to look at this because it gives us a really interesting look at class and gender, social relations uh, between. Uh, not only men and women, but people of power, um, people who were disenfranchised, uh, this whole idea of the rugged individual moving west and how that factors into American lore. Um, you know, a, a, a trip to the saloon frequently meant um, a, a roll in the hay with, with one of the prostitutes that was there. So it was very much a part of this uh, experience that so many people lived as the United States was expanding. And the history of what 
prostitution meant to the people who lived it. You know, the history of, of what it was like to be a prostitute, um, how that subculture operated, why did women get into this business, uh, is, is something that we really can only answer through the archaeological record, or at least the archaeological record can give us a, a much better view of what it was like for these women, because the records that we have uh, were not written by the prostitutes themselves. They were written by people who were opposed to the prostitutes or trying to manage it. Uh, court records, police records, uh, newspaper articles about uh, you know people getting busted, um, anti-vice literature, health records about you know the the uh, uh, link between prostitution and the spread of uh, STDs. All these things don't paint a very flattering picture of what it was like for prostitutes during this era. Yeah, so you're getting basically a negative spin on it. Exactly, you're getting a negative spin on it. So, you know, we we think of, of, you know, and it's negative, and it's this idea that these women are always victims, and they have no power, and they have no agency. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to condone human trafficking or anything like that. And did that happen? Yes, it happened then as it happens today. And it's, and it's tragic for those involved. But to assume that that's always the case is an error because you're applying ideas that we have today in 2015 to the past. And you can't always do that because people may have thought differently about stuff back then. And indeed, it would seem that um, prostitutes got into this business uh, for very logical and rational reasons, and they that they gave thought to. And how do you represent? How is that represent? Well, okay, let's let's take a step back. You're saying initially that there's a negative spin here, obviously because all of the literature and the written accounts are warning against and basically casting the the prostitutes in a very negative light. How does the archaeological record? sort of elevate that, and is there an engendering component associated with that that spins it in a positive light? Well, yes. And what the archaeology shows, uh, you know, there there are different kinds of institutions of prostitution, and that cater to different kinds of clientele. You have kind of the low-end brothel where men just come and go, and they're there for sex, and it's just all about the sex. That has a certain archaeological profile. In a lot of cases, there's a lot of booze that's served in this. We see these out west. Um, it's just, you know, the brothel where there's liquor and men can have, you know, they come in from the gold mines or what have you, in from the uh, herd and the steers, and they come into town and they get drunk and they have sex because they don't have opportunities to do either where they usually are doing their work. And so it's like going in and blowing your hard-earned pay. So that has a certain archaeological profile. But on the other hand, you have uh, what were called parlor houses. And some of these uh, were catering to the finest, um, uh, that, that, uh, the finest men in society. And you have uh, one of the best excavated ones is just down the street from Capitol Hill and was very, very active during the 1860s, during the Civil War when generals and other important people were coming in and out of Washington to meet with the president. Uh, Of course, Congress is just down the street. Uh, Important people of all stripes uh, would be able to take a quick walk at lunch, go down the street, have a beautiful meal on elegant china, drink fine wines, 
eat uh, uh, exotic things like shellfish and seafood and stuff that had to be trucked in in the age, you know, immediately brought in before the age of refrigeration, have a wonderful meal, be entertained by the ladies, and then go back and vote on whatever bill is on the floor of the Senate. So we have a whole bunch of different manifestations of this. But here's the thing, Joe, that they all have in common. Everyone be it the prostitute at the high-end parlor house that's luxurious and expensive, catering to the discreet gentleman, or be it the woman who is in the body house in the, the, the uh, gold rush town out in rural Nevada. Archaeological evidence demonstrates that these women had a higher standard of living than the average uneducated working-class woman of the era. And so... And this, this comes in the form of the personal items that the women had uh, that were found, you know, in the, in the uh, archaeological remains. Uh, they had access to more luxury goods. They had access to better nutrition. They uh, uh, had access to more, uh, more health care. Um, in, in the forms of medicines and potions and tonics of the day, uh, not all of which were effective, of course, but uh, certainly cost money and were not available to a woman who had a venereal disease and lived in a tenement in New York City, for example. Right. So we see across the board a higher standard of living for these women, which leads to the inevitable inclusion, or conclusion, why are you doing this? Well, is it a choice? Or are you being forced into this? Well, you have a higher standard of living. You know, these women, and, and indeed most people, you know, back in the 19th century, you know, the folks didn't go to college with the rates that they go today. Uh, you know, life was tough. Life was hard. You started working young. Most people didn't get much of an education. Uh, so what are your options? If you're a working class person or a poorer person or a recent immigrant, what are your options? You can go work as a seamstress in a textile factory and you know, Manhattan someplace and earn pennies a day and try to scrap by and live in, you know, very rough conditions uh, in a tenement someplace, in a ghetto someplace. Uh, Or you can try, you can save up your pennies and try to go west and try to make a better life for yourself by selling your body as a prostitute. Uh, It is an option. And uh, regardless of how people feel about it morally, uh, it's, it's a viable economic option that a lot of women took up because it was better than the alternative of staying in the cities and working in that kind of environment and living in that kind of environment. Interesting. What you're basically saying is prostitution as a vehicle for upward mobility, probably in a way that was, as you indicated, sort of a win-win all the way around for all levels and strata in society, which brings me to a transition here into how is the course received when you teach a course like this about which you're clearly very well versed what kind of responses are you getting in the classroom uh it, it it's it it fills up quickly <laughs> at registration time uh i i usually don't have any trouble getting enough enough bodies in the seats and I think that the students come into it with this idea that it's going to be something kind of sensationalistic and, um, you know, a little tawdry, and we're just going to watch porno movies or something like that. Uh, but I really do start off with, you know, the, the, here's the reasons that we do it, and, and really kind of the theoretical and methodological approaches that you have to take to study this 
you know, very unique, but ubiquitous aspect of modern human culture, or of all human culture. Sure. Um, and, and the students, I think, initially are kind of taken aback, and they're like, okay, well, all this archaeology is fine. And, you know, I, I have about an even split, because it's an anthropology course, it's an anthropology elective, so, you know, junior, senior year, it's kind of a rite of passage for the anthropology majors to take archaeology as sex. But it's open to all majors, and so it's about a 50-50 split of, of anthropological upperclassmen who understand what I'm talking about when I talk about this method and theory stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And people from all walks of life, all majors here at uh, at UCF, and we got a, the second largest campus uh, in the country and a, a quite a quite a diverse student body. So I think that folks come in and they don't exactly know what to expect, but by the time they leave, they understand how and why, importantly, archaeologists do this and what really it can contribute to, you know, our understanding, our better understanding of not only past human culture, but why we look at sex the way we look at it today. And I think that that's been very well received by the students. I think they they really enjoy um, gaining that kind of perspective. What about what about responses politically and on campus? Because you know there is uh, you're you're bringing up some concepts that I think would not rest really well with a lot of uh, campus activists. If you if you want to go that route and say, well, you know, prostitution was a good thing, <laughs> and, uh, and and it was like it was almost else. objectively a uh, a means of raising yourself up by your bootstraps. It was. It was. Um, you know, fortunately, I haven't had a lot of people, a lot of people complain, and I don't have any uh, uh, anti-vice folks with pitchforks and torches outside my <laughs> my lecture hall. Uh, knock on wood. Um, so I, I think that I think that people have, uh, you know, it, it embraced it. Um, the people who take it seem to really enjoy it. Uh, there seems to be a, a pretty good pretty good demand for it. You know, I, I fill up the class. Uh, I teach it every spring, I'm teaching it this year, right now. And, um, uh, you know, it's it, it, I don't have any trouble filling it up. It seems like the demand is ongoing. Uh, and fortunately, I haven't really had that much trouble. Um, and and I'd, I'd like to think it's because I try to approach it not as, not in that sort of sensationalistic way, not as Oh yeah, well prostitution's good and we should legalize it and you know try to invoke anything like that. But just try to explain um in 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 archaeological and scientific terms why things happen and what people's motivation is and what what they're doing and what they're making and what they're using can tell us about the way they viewed the world. So it's just kind of matter of fact. You can not like prostitution, but that doesn't change the fact that it exists, and it exists for a reason. You can frown upon the fact that the Greeks uh, uh, had uh, practiced uh, ritualized uh, pederasty uh, with men uh, frequently having sex with boys. You, you can find that however you find that. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it happened, and it was an important part of who the Greeks were. So, you know, it, we can always focus... Uh, the lens of our cultural worldview in 2015 on people of the past and say, what were they thinking? Thank God that, you know, we, we don't do that anymore. Thank God we've evolved beyond that. But, you know, that, that doesn't really help. That doesn't explain much, right? You know, why are things different today than they were? Um, there's a whole passel of reasons for that, too. 
Uh, how, how, is, how have attitudes towards sex and sexuality evolved? Well, if you want to understand where we are today, then it's important to understand where we were in the past, whether you like it or not. Okay, you can feel however you want to feel about it, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. And and I think that that approach has has been pretty well and pretty you know embraced pretty well. People say, okay, well, at least I can learn about this. It might turn my stomach. It might violate everything I learned about, you know, run counter to everything I learned in Sunday school. But, you know, he's going to teach it in a way that is kind of objective and not really judgmental one way or the other and just try to provide the information. And that's what I set out to do. And I think that this is a a real eye-opener to a lot of us who uh, just were from the outset, very, very intrigued by the depictions in the literature, the depictions, and more graphically, certainly in the murals of ancient Egypt and in the frescoes and extending well into the Middle Ages when all of a sudden there was a little hiatus here, and then obviously going back into modern times where uh, various cultures depicted sex and sexuality in the ways that were prevalent at that time frame. Peter, I want to thank you so much for this very refreshing interview on a very, very critical and interesting topic, and thank you so much for participating in the show. It just flew by. It it was a pleasure. Uh, I I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Thanks very much, and we will be back next week with another episode. Until then, stay happy, stay well, and look at the past as a guide to the future, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.